0: Hello, and welcome to Simple Pursuit, the teaching ministry of Coastal Oaks Church in Rockport, Texas. It is our prayer that you will grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that you will be blessed and challenged as you listen in. Grab your Bible, because here is today's teaching. All right, take your Bible and open to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. John, chapter 17 continue through the gospel, this great gospel that uh, John wrote for us so that we would believe in the name of Jesus and have life. John chapter 17, you know, every classic movie, I should have asked my piano player to stay behind for a second, but that's okay. No, 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 you're fine. I got it. Every classic movie has one of these. I think this is it. Who's coming? When you hear that, who's coming? Let's go lower so it really frightens you. Who's coming? You're at Rockport Beach. Who's coming when you hear that music? Jaws! Come on. Good grief. It's the same note 500 million times. Superman. Anybody want to hum that? I thought about playing that one, but you don't want that to happen. You know what song comes in when Darth Vader walks in? You know what that song's called? Anybody? You guys need to be cultured. <laughs> you need to listen to music without lyrics. It'll expand your mind. The Imperial March. Dun dun, 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 Okay. That has absolutely nothing to do with this sermon this morning. I just want to see <laughs> if you're awake. No, just kidding. It really does. Because if you're reading through the Gospel of John, if you've been reading from beginning to end, if we were watching the Gospel of John portrayed on the silver screen, we'd be getting close to the climax of that soundtrack, If you're watching a movie, that soundtrack in the background helps you know what's about to happen. Hence the famous two notes of the Jaws theme. I mean, man, if I could have written that, right? It helps us know that Superman's coming. He's about to win. The Imperial March helps us know the climax is coming and Darth Vader's about to walk in and meet his destiny with his son Luke As we're reading through the Gospel of John, we are getting close. The music is starting to crescendo in John chapter 17. In verse one, Jesus says, the hour has come. The hour has come. That's how he begins his prayer. The hour has come. For the last three years, the disciples have followed Jesus wherever he went. It's been hazardous. It's been rocky. It's been life-threatening at times. But they've also seen life-changing miracles like we looked at last week with the Lazarus story in John chapter 11. Now they're getting ready to start that final ascent to the peak of the story, to the climax of the story, to the highest point of the mountain, because the hour has come. It's not just the hour that Jesus has been preparing for. This hour has hung in the balance for all of time. From the Garden of Eden, where God made the promise for the rescuer, the snake-crushing redeemer that would save all of humanity from their sin. As that crescendo begins, Jesus pauses for a moment to pray to the Father. Let's pray together. Father, we can add nothing to the prayer of our savior. So we come, Lord, with our word, our copy of your word open. And through this prayer, we want to know you more. And so we must know more of your word. The Father, I pray, I pray this so that the name of Jesus would be covered in glory. Thus you are glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, if Jesus thought it necessary, found it necessary to pray, so must we. We have to. What you read in John 17 is not really a model prayer for us. It is insight that we've not received anywhere else in Scripture to the prayer life of our Savior and our Lord. He teaches us the model prayer and what we call the Lord's Prayer when His disciples ask Him, Lord, teach us to pray, which is, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. But this is not that. This has been called a model of obedience. When we look at Jesus, we see in every aspect of his life, of his ministry, perfect obedience. It can't be a model prayer because he is unique in his relationship to the Father. This prayer cannot be our prayer because we are not the Messiah. We are not the one going to the cross. He is, or he was. We look at this prayer and it's called the High Priestly Prayer. You may have that title in your, in your copy of scripture. It's what it's commonly known as because Jesus is our great high priest. You go to Hebrews chapter 10. Let me put in a commercial here for our ladies one day, a women's ministry one day gathering retreat. I believe you're going to be covering Hebrews chapter 10 that day. So there it is. Sign up today. But he is our great high priest according to Hebrews. And he didn't just sit out here saying, when you pray, pray like this. He didn't do that. What I find encouraging, reassuring, and strengthening my faith as I've read through this passage is as I read this prayer that Jesus prayed himself before he went to the cross, I also find this in the New Testament, Romans chapter 8, verse 34. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It's not that Jesus just prayed one time, or that he just prayed twice before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, or that he just prayed while he was on earth. He is today at the right hand of the Father, interceding for the church. That is reassuring to me as I read John seventeen. John 17, yes, it happened 2,000 years ago. But he didn't stop praying. He is still praying for the church. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. I don't know if you've ever been in a courtroom. The only reason I've been in a courtroom was for that glorious jury service or two adoption cases. At which point we had an advocate. A lawyer who is advocating for our family to bring children into our family, to change their name, to change their status from what they were to Irving's. That's what Jesus is. And he's not a lawyer. He's an advocate with the Almighty. He is interceding for us. And so you might ask, what is it that Jesus is praying? Well, when you read John 17, it is a small taste of his prayer life. It's one chapter, 26 verses. But if you're in Christ, what I find reassuring is that he is for you. He is. He is praying for you. He will not lead you to make choices that are contrary to his word. He is praying that you will follow. He is praying that you will walk in obedience. He is praying that you will walk in grace and mercy and the strength of the filling of the Holy Spirit. He is praying for you, and though this is one prayer, it is often broken down. We're going to try to cover it in one sermon. That find it next to impossible. So we may be here till uh, twelve anyway, and the next group will just come in. But we'll 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 figure it out. It's normally broken down into sections. Three sections: one, Jesus prays for himself; two, he prays for the disciples; then he prays for the church, the church future looking. But what I wanna look at this morning according to this is the five requests that he makes to the Father himself. All right, Jesus makes five requests in this prayer, specifically the rest he's filling in in between. The first one we find is in verses one through five, and it is that Jesus prayed to the Father to glorify him. Look at this with me. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you So the context of John 17 is that it's sandwiched between 16 and 18, where in chapter 16, Jesus ends with encouraging the disciples, reassuring them, hey, listen, it's about to get real hard. If you think it's been tough now, just wait. It's about to get really tough. But remember this. I have overcome the world, right? No matter what you see, no matter what you hear, just remember, I have overcome the world. He says, take heart. I have overcome the world. Even though in this world you're going to have tribulation, take heart. I have overcome the world. Then in chapter 18, what you find is where Judas betrays him and the arrest and he goes to trial. He's on his way to the cross. All right. So chapter 17 is strategically placed in this moment because what we find our Savior in is a moment of crisis. The disciples are in a moment of crisis because the one they've been following, the one they've invested their lives and he invested in them. He's about to be arrested. He's about to go to trial. He's about to die. It's a moment of crisis. And what does he do in that moment of crisis? But he prays. Notice the posture he takes. He says he lifted up his eyes to heaven. He lifted up his eyes. We make much of the posture of prayer. Sometimes we make more of a big deal of the posture we take than the actual prayer we're saying and how we're approaching the Father. It's fine. You'll see Jesus prostrated on the ground in Matthew. You'll see him kneeling on the ground in the Gospel of Luke, I believe it is. But in the Old Testament, you're going to find it all. You're going to find it all. You're going to find people doing all the postures and yet we hear Jesus saying, these people give me lip service. It's not about... The posture, like we said earlier in our prayer time, what matters is the posture of your heart before the Lord. And here Jesus looks up. He's lifting up his eyes to the Father. There is a very close connection between the two. And the request that he makes is actually made at the end of verse one when he says, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Again, in verse five, he repeats that, glorify me. When we talk about the glory of God, and glorifying God we're talking about a noun and a verb the glory of God quickly would say is his majesty and his splendor god being glorified is an appropriate response to his goodness so when we worship we are responding to his goodness we are responding to his grace and his mercy which would be wrapped up in his goodness therefore we're glorifying him and so when jesus prayed to be glorified he's praying that his goodness would be seen and celebrated. So the greatness of Jesus needed to be celebrated, but he's about to go to the cross. How is that possible? For the Jew, to be on the cross is a curse. It is a sign of God's displeasure with you if you are on the tree. Cursed is the one who hangs on the tree. How will God glorify someone associated with the cross? How would God Make that happen with all that is wrong with the world. Verse five, God will take the son and God will restore him to the position that he had before the foundation of the world. You see that in verse five? I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now, link that back to the sermon on John chapter 1, verse 1. Not the sermon, but the text. You understand why John 1, 1 is so vitally important. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now we we see Jesus praying, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had before the world existed. That will come at the resurrection. Jesus wants to be glorified, but not for himself. This is the other key to this opening request. He's not praying for himself to be glorified only, but as Jesus is glorified, so also the Father is glorified. He's not being selfish. He's passing that glory on to his Father. Someday there will be a time in heaven when all will cry out with one voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. We look forward to that day. That's when that prayer is going to be answered and and we're going to witness it. Jesus, you see here, also in this request as he's filling in why he desires to be glorified, he has fulfilled everything God sent him to do. He says... That Jesus, he says, that he exercised great authority while he was in, while he was on earth working out that mission. God gave him authority over all people. That's what verses two and three point us to. John twenty twenty one says, "Peace be with you, as the Father sent me, even so I am sending you." The Father sent Jesus to save sinners, and he is doing that. He has done that. He's going to do it at the cross. This is what He's done completely and thoroughly. And without Jesus, what we need to see in verses one through six, five, what we see is that without Jesus, verse three is absolutely impossible. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's not an experiential knowledge excuse me, I got that wrong. It's not a knowledge of information only, but rather it is an experiential knowledge. We can know the Father because of the Son. If God had not sent Jesus, we could not know God in that way. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. This is why Jesus was sent, and he says to his disciples in chapter 20, which will be there next week, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Jesus, in verse 4, accomplished the work that he was given to do. Friends, this so reassured me. As I read through this again, he glorified the Father by accomplishing every single task. There was nothing left before him at this very moment except the cross and the resurrection for which he followed through. This is the Jesus who is interceding for you today. That reassures my faith. It strengthens my resolve to keep running the race that he has marked out before me and before the church. The second request that Jesus makes, we find in verses 6 through 12. He moves now to his disciples, having prayed for himself, having prayed for glory, to be glorified so that the Father is glorified, to be returned back to that place where he was before time began. Verse 6 I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. He's talking about his disciples specifically. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. You see Jesus' concern. You hear his concern for his disciples as he prays, Father, keep them. Verses 6 through 12, there are marks of Jesus' obedience in his ministry. He had a missional mandate from the Father for God to love the world in this way so that he gave his one only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus had a missional mandate from the Father to save sinners, Jesus had a mandate from the Father because these 12, minus one, the son of destruction, that's Judas, were given to him by the Father. And he spent three years discipling them. He spent three years pouring into them, teaching them everything, teaching them, modeling obedience. This is what it looks like when it gets tough. This is how you keep going. This is how you persevere. This is how you stand for the truth. When everyone else around you is speaking a different truth and You've got the truth and you've got to proclaim it. This is the way it is. He even corrected their view of leadership, right? In Mark chapter 10, where they're asking, hey, when you get into your kingdom, can we sit on the right or the left, right? Who who is that gonna be? Who's gonna be in that position of authority? And Jesus is like, gentlemen, you have completely missed the mark here. I have not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. He prays for those who are in Christ, these disciples are going to be apostles. They, too, are going to be sent out on a, with a missional mandate. They are not the foundation of the church, but they are the first building blocks of the church, the living stones that, that talk about in Scripture, the living stones that we in Christ are also living stones. They're being built into that glorious temple, and Jesus prays for them. Here is this, only the power of God will keep them. It won't be the schemes of men. It won't be the the thoughts and the the plans of the disciples. How are we going to spread this gospel? How are we going to preach it? How are we going to go out? What kind of Sunday school program are we going to have? What kind of evangelism ministry are we going to have? They weren't plotting and scheming, man. They were up in the room praying. And the Holy Spirit showed up, and they went outside and started preaching. But it was only the power of God that would keep them. Think about how many times Paul or Peter or the others were in prison. How many times did the power of God intercede and release them from prison? Only the power of God would keep them. Only the power of God can keep them from wandering away. Only the power of God at work in them makes it even possible for them to follow Jesus in the first place, then obey his commands and proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth, fulfilling the great commission. And it's the same for us today. But it is the power of God through the indwelling and filling of the Holy Spirit. These men were given to Jesus by the Father, and Jesus had authority over them. Look at verse 6. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Again, in verse 9, Jesus used the verb have given, which means that it is an action that happened in the past but continues into the present. God has chosen, not based on merit, but rather upon his grace gift to his Son, We are a gift to the Son. Church, the church is a gift to the Son. But the disciples, he said, they've been obedient up to this point. Jesus says they've kept the Father's word. They've heard the the teachings of Jesus. They came to understand and to believe what God had said, that he was, in fact, the Son of God. Why did John write this gospel? So that you may believe in his name and have life. Jesus prayed in verse 11, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. He's asking the Father to preserve them, keep them. What God has done, which is eternal life, which God will do, which means that God will keep them by his power. It's a request for the eternal and spiritual security of the disciples because he knows it's about to get real, real tough. Jesus just simply points out reality. He says, look, the reality is is that I'm coming back to you and they're still in the world. It's gonna get tough. So he's asking that the Father go before them. Go with them into the spiritual battle that will ensue. In the battle, keep them united. Keep them one. It isn't one in organization. It's not one in structure. Don't get off down that tangent of denominationalism, but rather it is about spiritual unity. How does that happen? By being centered on Jesus Christ. But it also happens, more importantly, by the power of God. Next, Jesus prays for the disciples' sanctification. Look at verses 13 through 19. Now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy, my joy, fulfilled in themselves. He didn't ask for the disciples to be removed from the world. Notice what he prays for. He prayed for joy in the middle of the, joy in the middle of the battle. Joy in the midst of the struggle. Jesus had already had this conversation with them in several other places. If you go back to John 16, look at verse 22. He says, there you also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, in reference to the crucifixion, the resurrection. And your hearts will rejoice. And no one will take your joy from you. No one. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 and following. He says, It is by God's power that you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that... The tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Father, glorify me so that you may be glorified. James chapter 1, counted all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why would James and Peter write such things? Because this is what Jesus taught them. This is what Jesus reassured them of. You will have joy. No one will take it from you. Which super, like, overrides any situation or condition that they may find themselves in. This is why you find Paul and Silas singing and whooping it up in the, in, the, in, the, in the jailhouse, right? It doesn't matter. They've got joy because Christ is there and God is going before them. And it is in that struggle, in the striving, in the race, in the battle that the disciples will be in where they will have the inerrant word of God, the Old Old Testament at this point, where the New Testament is being written during that time. They have the word of God, just like we have the word of God today to guide us, to strengthen us, to lead us in the way everlasting. Jesus said, I have given them your word. They have believed it. Friends, we have a copy of that very word today in your possession, I hope, and if you don't have one, we'll get you one, but here we have it right here, we have to believe it. We have to live it. We have to follow it. And he is with us. We have the same word. John 17, 14, I've given them your word. Verse 17, the actual request is sanctify them in your truth. That's where the request is. Sanctify them in the truth. Your what? Word, word is truth. Not my word, not your word, not some other church's word. God's word is truth. So when we pray for things like sanctification, make us holy, make us more like Jesus, it is a reference to make us more like the book, the word. Because this is where we find out who Jesus is. This is where it's all laid out for us, step by step. Sanctify the disciples by your truth. Friends, the words of the Father will always point us to Jesus always. He will not lead you into sin. He will not lead you to something that is contrary to his word. And I'll say it, if you're walking down that road and you know it's something that in the you're walking towards something that the Bible calls sin and you're walking in it, then it is not Jesus you are following. It's not He will not lead you down that road. Sanctifying means that Jesus is asking the Father to set them apart for his good service. That's what the disciples are being prayed for. Set them apart for your good service. And we know how it's played out in the book of Acts. And because of this, these guys are consecrated, they're committed and dedicated to the Lord. Even though at the crucifixion they scatter, Jesus is gonna bring them back and restore them, and the Holy Spirit comes. And this is sanctification. Friends, we are to be engaged with the world. The world is our mission field. It is also a battlefield. And we dare not go to battle unless the Lord is with us. The last two requests that he makes in verses 20 through and 26 is that he the, that the Father unites the, the disciples or the church, and he prays that the church would be reunited with him. Now he's forward-looking. He says in verse 20, I pray, let's see, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Immediately, that's in the book of Acts, those who believe at Pentecost and on down the line and from generation to generation to generation to today, I believe that prayer still rings true for those who will believe in me through their word. That they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them. That they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you and me. That they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. There I've just read the last two requests. Unite. Unite your disciples, Father, and reunite us. Keep them one. He's praying for the supernatural unity of the church. Let me start with what unity is not it is not compromising the truth. There are plenty of those that think unity is a compromising of the truth, giving ground where we disagree so that we can find something to to hang our hats on, but it cannot be a compromising of the truth. Jesus does not pray. For unity based on our personal opinions of who God is, but rather based on what God really is as revealed through his word and the disciples' teaching, which we have in his word, and they point us back to Jesus. Friends, we will find unity in that we believe in Jesus Christ. He is what keeps us together because he is what saved us. When you see division in scripture, you see people following Paul. You see people following Peter. You see people following Apollos and some following Jesus. Friends, our unity comes from following Jesus. Case in point, look around the room this morning. Go ahead, nobody's gonna scare you or jump out at you. As you look around the room, you see folks who love the Astros. You see friends who like the Rangers. We've even got a Yankees fan in our congregation. We can't make fun of him because he's one of our founding members. We've got Red Raiders and T-Sips and Aggies, Bears, Crusaders, thank you, a host of others. Somewhere in there is a LSU Tiger, oh my. We've got Cowboys fans and Texans fans. We even have a Packers fan in our church family now. We've got (laughs) white collar. We've got blue collar. Some of you stay at the beach all day, so that means no collar because you retired We've got RVers, renters, homeowners, Fords and Chevys and Dodges and those of you who drive foreign cars. We've got patriots and loyalists. We got all kinds of people. All kinds of people. By the world's standards, there is no reason we should be getting along Because we don't belong together. But we share one commonality, and that is Christ Jesus. We share something more powerful than a common experience of shared interest. We share Christ, and we don't compromise on the truth to be unified. We stand on Christ. Our unity does not come from deemphasizing the truth of God's revelation of his son because his son revealed the father. It's not banning diversity. If You think about military structure. You think of a military parade. Everybody's dressed the same. They become a, fa- a face. I remember when Jake graduated from, from uh, boot camp. We went to San Diego to watch him march and I'm like, Where's my son? They all look alike. That's the point. He was no longer just my son. He was a Marine. But that's not the church. Because the Spirit has given a variety of gifts. And we all work together for the common purpose of living out the great commission to make Jesus known to glorify him. therefore the Father would be glorified. So this is a classic statement of church unity that still rings true today. In all things, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Unity, not uniformity, is what Jesus is praying for. And it is a participation in that shared relationship with Jesus. Finally, he prays, and we'll end on this. Jesus prayed for the Father to reunite his disciples with us, uh, with him. We can look forward to Revelation chapter 4. We're going to get there one of these days. But I think of the answer to John 17, 24 through 26, as the book of Revelation and how that comes to fruition. Because God will bring the church home. And He prays that the Father will reunite us all in the end. This is the purpose of the revelation of John that the Son of God is praying that God the Father would reunite His people and bring them to glory so that we would see the glory the Father has given to the Son. Look at Revelation chapter four. This is oh but a glimpse and it's what John could get down. It was inspired to write. After this I looked up and behold a door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. I wanna go there. And by God's grace and the blood shed upon the cross and the power of the resurrection and by believing in the name of Jesus, you can too. As we come to our time to respond this morning, I wanna wanna ask you if you have trusted in Jesus as Savior and Lord of your life. Have you heard the words of the gospel and believed in the name so that you would have eternal life? Thank you for listening today. For more information regarding Coastal Oaks Church, like service times, or what to expect upon your visit, go to our website at coastaloakschurch.org. May God bless you in the journey and the simple pursuit of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord.